um, kind of, I guess, the beginning of the end of um, Old Testament 1. Uh, just so you know, Wednesday nights, I think next Wednesday we're going to do something really, really special. I don't want to spoil it for you, so I'm just going to encourage you, uh, and, and I know that you will, go ahead and be here, plan on being here, because I guarantee you, you are not going to want to miss, particularly when you understand uh, what we're doing here, and in, in not just discipleship, but making disciples, you're not going to want to miss what we have in store next week. I've got a couple more questions in, which has been exciting. Please continue to do so. When I get back, the first time we'll meet together, we're going to answer those questions. Um, of course, we, we know those questions are from this survey class, because this is a survey class. We've covered 10 books in 10 weeks, so there's plenty that we missed, and so if you have anything that you've thought about uh, that we didn't cover, that we, you didn't hear, or you want clarification on, please email or text or um, call. Do people still call on the phone? Uh, yeah, you can call and, uh, and ask us those questions. We'd be happy to field them. And uh, don't, don't call me, though, Tuesday night before class. Uh, give me a little bit of time, all right? right? So, uh, so go ahead and get those questions in. you got like two weeks here uh, to get them in, and I'm looking forward to that time again. All right, let's dig in. Uh, this is kingdom through covenant. Kingdom through covenant. And again, this kind of serves both as a little bit of a reminder and, uh, and a teaching opportunity. We've discussed God's covenant, um, and we've summarized it with, with eight words, really, right? And I'm really hoping when you look at that first fill in the blank, you can get it. Can anybody go ahead and guess what the storyline of the Bible is when we talk about the kingdom of God being established? It's God's... People, very good, in God's place, under God's... Oh, that just warms my heart. All right, fantastic. That's right, absolutely. That's what the storyline of the Bible is about. It's how God established his kingdom. Um, in fact, we really got that from a guy named Graham Goldsworthy um, in his book entitled Gospel and Kingdom, which is a fabulous book, which is another plug. If you like to read... You want something to read on particular topics. You want good doctrine. Listen, that is, is where we need to come into play, right? Because that's part of our responsibility to shepherd you is to keep you from reading bad doctrine written from false prophets uh, and, and, and instruct you to read good doctrine from people who uh, we believe are, are serving the Lord and know the Lord. So please reach out if you need any questions about books, but particularly this book, Gospel and Kingdom, by a guy named Graham Goldsworthy. Um, he kind of uh, underlines the whole message of the Bible, storyline of the Bible, in those eight words. So consider this. We've seen this, right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, uh, who were God's people? In Genesis 1 through 3? Adam and Eve. Very good. I didn't think that was that part of the question, but just, just a warm-up. <laughs> we're warming up here. And what was God's place? The Garden of Eden. Okay, good. So let's move on to Genesis 6. Who is God's people in Genesis 6? Okay, well, let's, let me just test you. The whole earth was filled with wickedness, right? But somebody found favor in the sight of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6. Who built the ark? Noah. Okay, you didn't want me to sing. All right, so, um, so God rules his people, being Noah, and not just Noah, but Noah and his family, right, in his place. What would be his place in Genesis 6? The ark. All right, we're getting there. All right, from Genesis chapter 12, God promises a new people. And from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the exile, God means to rule his people. And his people would be 
Israel, right? In his place, which would be the promised land, right? By means of his rule, which we would call Ten Commandments, otherwise known as the law. Very good. All right. Uh, So what we've seen and what we'll continue to see, even in Old Testament survey chapter 2, is that God's people continuously reject and rebel against him, leading to their exile. And yet, what God's people are looking forward to is what? What are they looking for? His return. Not his return, his first coming, right? And who's first coming? What are they looking for? The Messiah. And how do we know this? From what chapter of the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, the promise of the Messiah. Remember, the whole Bible is about the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And this one who is going to crush the seed of the serpent's head and have his heel bruised. That's what God's people are looking for. And that person is going to be God's person who perfectly lives according to God's rule. And all throughout the Old Testament... We've seen types of this person, but each and every one of them failed the test in some way. And those who are united to this one person by faith, they're looking forward to that new place in the new heavens and new earth, which is God's place where they will live together under God's rule. So again, I'm going to say it over and over again. And the reason I'm saying it over and over again is because it's not just to be something you know. It's to be something you say and you teach to those around you. The story, the whole Bible, and the kingdom of God can be found in those eight words. God's people and God's place under God's rule. So our final class tonight, again, is about tracing the covenant. Uh, So we'll be reviewing, yes, And really what Stephen Wellam called in his book, The Kingdom Through Covenant. The idea of that is simple. And here it is. From the beginning of Scripture to the end, God establishes His kingdom through covenants. It's these covenants that really give structure to the Bible as a whole. You can think of them as the steel framework which holds the entire building together. Okay? So we start there with the first one, creation and the Adamic covenant. So this one's real hard. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. In fact, I bet somebody in here can probably quote that, right? You can read it if you want, or quote it. You want to say it together? Let's say it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very good, all right? God is the creator of the universe. And as creator, that means something, right? It means he's also a ruler. He owns it. It's his. The author has authority, right? Uh, This is what we see. And then we move down to verses 26 and 28 where God creates his people, Adam and Eve, in his image. And then verse 28 specifically tells us that God blesses them. And what does he command them? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. So God's rule is a generous um, a rule, to be sure. He, he rules by setting the trajectory for Adam and Eve's life. Listen, God didn't just create them and then say, go figure out how to live 
on your own. No, he set the trajectory for their life. And so I know what you're thinking, probably. We talked about covenants, and I don't see anywhere in the first few chapters of the Bible the use of the language of covenant. But there's a saying that if something looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, I knew somebody was going to do that. Thanks. All right. So as we come to understand covenant throughout our study, uh, does anybody can, can anybody tell me what that word covenant means? If you have an uh, understanding about that, I know you've got a definition here right there in your notes, but tell me in your own words what you probably think a covenant is. It's a contract. Yeah, in a sense, yes, right? It's a, it is a, a contract, but it's not, it's not just a letter of law without emotions involved, right? Like you wouldn't say, I'm married to Jessica and we have a contract. I hope you would. All right, so <laughs> hope, I hope I set you I up. Did there. Not say I hope. Could have had anybody else that question? No. All right. Or Bob. All right. That's right. Bob's not even here for that one. All right. Paul Williamson gives this definition, and it is really great. It, I couldn't put this better if I tried. A covenant is this: a solemn commitment. Guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties, sealed with an oath. Okay, um, and so the covenantal nature of Adam and Eve in the Lord's relationship, uh, it really becomes uh, evident in chapter two, particularly in verses fifteen through seventeen. Somebody want to read that for me, if you can. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any garden in the tree, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge or good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so do you notice that? Listen, God, God provides Adam with a list of duties and commitments, right? He promises blessing for Adam's obedience and curse for disobedience, right? He, he binds them by this verbal commitment, this oath or this covenant. To define covenant another way, somebody said a covenant is the constitutionalization of a relationship. It involves the coming together, congregating of separate parties by a morally binding pact that establishes line of authority and the boundaries of the group of community. So how does God establish his kingdom rule on earth? Through covenants. God even calls Adam a son, actually, in Genesis chapter 5. Look what he says there in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, of course, we know what Adam and Eve did to God's rule, don't we? They rejected it. They launched the original revolution, by the way. They pull out their parchment paper, their quill pens, and they draft their own constitutions and crown themselves kings. Question is, does their revolution succeed? Do they place themselves outside of God's rule and kingdom? Genesis answers this question with a, with a resolute no, particularly in at least two ways. First, in the first way, is that the sword remains in God's hand, even if his hand is invisible now. 
And then we see, secondly, in Genesis chapter 5, you know, when we read those lists of names and we think, well, surely this is not significant, it's just names, who cares? But, but the genealogical tables in Genesis 5 conclude every name with this very important phrase in light of what takes place in Genesis 3. And he died. And he died. See, we read that with a post-Genesis 3 lens and think, well, that's just normal. But in the narrative, we're actually supposed to be tragically shocked by that, right? Death is very new at this point, and yet we see this recurring theme. He enacting, he's enacting his, his curse on humanity as he promised. The second way we see that God answers the questions of whether or not they place themselves outside of the kingdom with a resounding no is the fact that all humanity remains under God's rule, and it's evident uh, with the Bible's second major covenant, which is where we now transition to the Noahic covenant. By the way, these covenants are widely known in theological circles by just turning their names into adjectives and putting I-C on the end. Noahic, Adamic, Abrahamic, so on and so forth. So that's not, I didn't create that. That's okay. So let's turn to the Noahic covenant. In Genesis chapter 9, God is going to renew his original mandate for all creation. Somebody read Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? That's restating the Edemic covenant, is it? Same thing. But you see in verses 2 through 6 that, that God makes almost adjustments for the fact of the fall. Right? So animals will now fear humankind, as many of our men are going to celebrate throughout this month. Um, <laughs> and then the charter for government is granted, actually. Verse 5b says, From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And then verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Down to verse 11, would say, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. By the way, it's another understanding of the covenant is, I was going to say sign of the covenant, is that covenants always come with a sign. A sign of the covenant is the covenant always comes with a sign. This, this one is God's bow of war set across the sky. In fact, it's set down across the sky. He will withhold his judgment in introducing the idea really of eschatology to the Bible. See, the Noahic covenant, as I said, it, it renews the Edemic, though he places in it a post-fall context. Noah is the new Adam. So we have covenant sign, God's bow of war set down, and then the new Adam is Noah. Noah. God's rule now is going to come through him. Consider what that means, by the way. All humanity is subject to God's rule. All are, all are accountable to his judgment, whether they acknowledge God or not. Sodom and Gomorrah learn this pretty clearly in Genesis chapter 9. King of Imelech learns it in Genesis chapter 20. Pharaoh learns it in the first half of Exodus, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar later in Daniel. Jesus tells Pilate that his authority comes from above. And the psalmist sums this up by saying, Among the nations the Lord reigns, and he shall judge the people's Righteously in Psalm 96, verse 10 there. So, friends, do you think that our neighbors, our co-workers, and yes, our congressmen, 
are any less accountable to God than these biblical characters. Through the Noahic covenant, God's kingdom, his rule, remains in effect. And Noah does a little bit better than Adam, we could say. Although, no, he doesn't. (laughs) Noah gets drunk. And a few chapters later, we find all humanity rebelling once more again through the Tower of Babel. Which will lead us to the Abrahamic covenant. That's in Genesis chapter 12. Since Travis is not here, somebody read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. That's, that's his verse, but we'll steal it from him now. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse who curse you uh, and those who curse who and the one who curses you I will curse and you in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's right. And then you can actually skip down to verse 7 and he says to your descendants mm-hmm. I will give this land. Right? In fact, if you were to turn just a little bit over to chapter this is how you turn in your Bible by the way. If you turn a little bit over to chapter 15, God says in chapter 15 verse 18 it says, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. And then if you turn a little bit over, and finally in chapter 17, this covenant is explained a little bit more clearly in Genesis 17.4. He says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. I will make you, verse 6, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and And you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Father Abraham will beget not just children, but kingdoms. Verse 6 says, I will make nations of you, kings shall come from you. But notice what the sign of the covenant is in the Abrahamic covenant. What is it? Circumcision. Look at you already got it. And then who is the new Adam here? You just take that IC off the covenant ahead, and there you have it, right? Uh, Abraham was also a new Adam. God's covenant with Adam and Noah we can call common covenants because they were covenants with all of known existing humanity at that time. But beginning with Abraham, we get a line of special covenants. Covenants that are exclusively given to God's people. And it's very important for our purposes to understand the relationship between the common covenants covenants, and the special covenants. Listen closely to the grammar in some of these texts that I'm going to read to you that you have listed there. In Genesis 1.28, look at what it says. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 9 of Genesis It says, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Turn your notes over and look at what God promises Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And in chapter 17, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan. Do you see the specifics there? Right? Do you see the change in language? 
there, there's a difference. And what's the difference? Really, the difference is in Genesis 1 and 9, what we have are commands. And those commands turn into promises for God's people. So the commands of Genesis 1 and 9 turn into promises in Genesis 12 and following. There's a lot of other texts there. God means to use the redeemed line of Abraham to fulfill his creation purposes. So how do we characterize the relationship between what we called common covenants, which is where we put Adam and Noah, and then we would have special covenants, which is what we're introduced to with Abraham. How should we characterize those two things? What the common covenants command, the special covenants give and therefore fulfill. That's the line there in your notes. What the common covenants command, the special covenants give and therefore fulfill. God gives this, by the way, as you keep flipping over, right? You really should have just started left with your Bible and then now we're just turning right um, to Exodus chapter 7, or Exodus chapter 1, excuse me, verse 7. Does somebody want to read that one for me? Exodus 1, 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Is that all? The, no. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Phone just, oh, you're fine. Um, <laughs> but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Which means God's special people are to model what is commanded of all people. Right? They, they are to be God's special kingdom who exemplify and model and portray and image what God means for the rest of humanity by living with righteousness and justice. Remember we talked about that Sunday, if you were here Sunday morning, that, that Israel really is a microcosm of humanity in a lot of ways. We see that. That's the reality. That's how it's supposed to be. And so there we have the Abrahamic covenant. And now, since we're in Exodus, we move on, but we're going to couple these together. Again, probably a lot because we're about to deal with the Davidic covenant in January and Sunday morning, but we're going to look at the Mosaic and Davidic covenants. Um, can someone try and describe for me the relationship you think there is between the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants? What do you think is going to be different here with Mosaic and Davidic from what we see in Abraham? What was missing from Abraham's covenant almost that, that Moses is going to have? Particularly when we talk about the rule of God. What does God give Moses? The law. The law. Right? Really, there's going to be a big difference here, right? Because what you have, we've established God's people, God's place in their God's rule. The promise is there. If you, uh, if you, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. The, the, the covenant that, that's kind of ratified with the... the uh, now we're going to have that shifted. And really, I would say this. Um, here's what you have in your notes. Both the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants, they are devices. Okay, devices for implementing these Abrahamic promises. Because you can look at those promises and say, I'm going to make you in a great nation. Through you, all the earth will be blessed. And the people can respond with, how? Right? Certainly not going to be by making just good people, because we see that immediately disqualified through the, sorry, the people of Genesis, right? All these heroes of the faith. But, but really, with, with Moses and David, what we have are devices for how these promises are going to be Implemented Here we see part of the promise fulfillment formula. God makes a promise to Abraham. Then he uses two covenants to say, now you do it. 
Israel in the Mosaic Covenant is called a son. They are a corporate Adam. Israel is a son, new corporate Adam. So there you have new corporate Adam. You can write Israel in parentheses, a son. In fact, we see this particularly in Exodus 4, 22 through 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's that's pretty crazy, right? Um, It's going to be a little bit crazier as you understand that in light of the word of God. And then after rescuing the people from Egypt, God says in chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, is God talking about the Abrahamic covenant here? No, he's he's actually talking about the one he's going to give through to all of Israel through Moses. And then sure enough, we turn over to the next chapter, and what do we know Exodus 20 for being famous for? The giving of the Ten Commandments, right? So the covenant sign of this covenant, the new corporate Adam is Israel or a son. The covenant sign is going to be this. It's, it's going to be Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping. In fact, if somebody has an opportunity uh, to go ahead and read chapter 24, verses 7 through 8, let me encourage you to do that for me. Of Exodus, by the way. Exodus 24, 7 through 8. Now, it's been too long with silence, so somebody can put a hand up and say, I'll read this, and that way you don't have to be scared. Somebody else is going to butt in. Go ahead, Jared. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people... And they said, all, all that the Lord has said will, we, sorry, said will we do, and be obedient. Uh, eight, yes. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. That's good. Um, by the way, I don't snicker, try not to snicker when it says in, in verse 7 where he says, They said, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Yeah. Um, But we're no better. Like, we we can laugh at that because we know that we can't say that either, right? Um, It's by keeping, though. Listen, in this context, we have to hear this in the the overall covenant here. And it's, it's by keeping this covenant and being obedient citizens of God's kingdom, as God said in Exodus 19, that they would become a kingdom of priests. They would show the world what true human dominion looks like through keeping the Mosaic Covenant. Israel's dominion was supposed to redefine righteousness and justice for a world that has up until this point done nothing but pervert it, as Pharaoh had. They would do this not as holy individuals, but as holy nations. Or uh, nation, sorry. So now we keep moving this way and we go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, but I'll go ahead and read that one for you. Somebody can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 7 if you want to keep going that way. Deuteronomy 17. The occupant of David's throne was expected to preeminently embody the values of the Mosaic Law, thereby reflecting the kingship of God. Now, we've mentioned Deuteronomy 17 quite a bit. I don't think we've ever actually read it on Sunday morning. Uh, But this is the, the prophetic 
understanding of what the king was going to be. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So when we look now to the Davidic covenant, right, that's described in 2 Samuel, in fact, you can go ahead and turn there, God says a number of things, but I want to focus in on verse 12 and 13. I'm going to go ahead and read it because I'm going to chop it up a bit. Um, it says this. This is the promise to David. We're going to come to this actually in January. It says, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So hear this again. This should, when you know Old Testament history, you hear what the king should do and then you see when God gets a king after his own heart, he reestablishes this covenant with David saying, this kingdom I'm going to establish Forever. And so David and his offspring were to be the covenant sign. That's your covenant sign here for David. It's David and his offspring. They were to specially represent the rule of God and God's kingdom to the people of God, and he was to represent God to the people. We just talked about that in first and second Samuel, right? The king was the representative. The kingdom of God was to made even clearer through this covenant. David, too, was to be kind of a new Adam, a special son of God, representing and imaging his heavenly father. And that leads us now to the New Testament. Because what do we know about Israel and their kings? They rebelled, just like Israel did, right? So you see this pattern now, right? She covenant to the world, the world rebels. Now we move from Genesis 12, we have covenant to the nation. What's the nation do from Genesis 12 on through Judges to 1 Samuel? Rebel over and over again. We have David come in. Now the king is going to be the representative. The king is going to be the picture of, of God's righteousness and justice to the world and fulfill what God has set forth before his people. The covenant of the kingdom will be established forever. What do we now see from the king? Rebel. Rebel. You get a theme here? Looking in? This is important. They did not represent God's wisdom and righteousness in the corporate life. Instead, they mimicked the folly and idolatry of the nations instead. So what was the result? The result was injustice and unrighteousness. Sadly, Israel and his kings rebelled. The result, injustice and unrighteousness. God therefore determined that he was going to offer a new covenant. And this is crazy good. Go ahead and turn to, Jer uh, to Jeremiah chapter 31. God's going to offer a new covenant and this new covenant is going to establish a truly just and righteous kingdom. Jeremiah 31 through, uh, 33. Someone read Jeremiah 31-33 for me. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so I love this. First off, he says, this is the covenant that I will make, that I, I'm going to come and enact this covenant. I'm going to make it with my people. And then notice the terms here. He gives them new, obedient, and free natures in the new covenant. You know what he says? He says, 
I'm, I'm no longer going to put the law on these stones for them. I'm going to put my law where? In their minds, in their hearts, right? And the covenant establishes a community of people, by the way. It's another thing that covenant. This covenant establishes a community, a group of people ruled by one ruler, a body politic. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it's a body politic, a kingdom that, by the way, destroys all the natural hierarchies of humankind. There are no classes, castes, or ethnic rivalries in this covenant people. In fact, that's what verse 34 says. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. No one has more access to truth than others and is therefore fit to rule over others. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And then finally, this covenant establishes this body politic on a foundation of judicial pardon and reconciliation. Because he says, for I will forgive their iniquity. Notice, by the way, there's not this now if-then sort of thing, right? God says, I'm making promise. Now, here's the promise, is I'm, I'm going to forgive their iniquity. So based on what we've just seen... How would you describe maybe the differences between the, the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant? Well, you don't have to answer that. Because I'm going to give you two ways not to describe it and two ways to describe it. I'm just going to see if you were going to answer it. Um, moving from the Mosaic to the New Covenant. Listen, it's not about this. Um, moving from the Mosaic, the Old Testament law, to the New Testament Covenant. It's not about moving from corporate to individual. Okay? Or from obedience required to no obedience required. That's very important we'd see that, right? Because when we hear that God is going to forgive their iniquities, the natural human fleshly thing for us to do is say, cool, that's great, I don't have to obey the Lord, wonderful. Okay, we're going to understand that. But it is about moving from a covenant in which Israel's obedience and kingdom life depend upon their own strength to a covenant in which their obedience and political kingdom life would depend upon God and His Spirit. Okay, that's your fill in the blank there. Um, it's going to move uh, from depending upon their own strength to a covenant in which their obedience and political kingdom life would depend upon God and His Spirit. And then also, God commands, God fulfills. Notice the relationship. It's similar to the relationship between common and special, isn't it? So, so think about that. We thought about the common covenant relationship to all humankind. Now it moves to this special group of people. And now it moves from this special group of people to this special group of people, but a special group of people wrought about by God and God alone. And then we understand this new covenant Covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. It's with all this background that we understand uh, that, we, that Jesus showing up in the Gospels and preaching the kingdom of God is very, very, very groundbreaking. It's in your handouts, but turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I want your eyes on it, so come on, bear with me. Just keep going this way, right? We started all the way left, and now we just keep going right, right? And I have you go back and forth. It's just all in order here for the most part. Um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is not a verse you think I'd probably bring up on Wednesday night. Somebody read that for me if you can. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yeah. And yeah, you got the right verse, right? That's You'd think, why, why would we turn there? Well, 
We're going to get a little nerdy here, but you ready? Anybody down to get nerdy tonight? All right. Matthew wrote these words in Greek. And in Greek, the first two words are biblos and geneseos. Okay? What does biblos sound like? Bible. Bible. You know what Bible means? Book. Book, right? Biblos. So book of... What does Geneseos sound like? Yeah, it sounds like Genesis, which means beginning. But just think about this. Book of Genesis. Matthew 1, 1, the New Testament opens up with Biblos Geneseos. Or if you're reading that in Greek and you know Hebrew, by the way, you're thinking Book of Genesis. Now, if anyone's been paying attention, especially close attention... Where have we seen those words before? You remember back in Genesis chapter 5-1? Where it says, this is the book of the genealogy. Biblos, Geneseos, of Adam. Those are the same words in the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's what Matthew and his readers would have been reading. And what do you think the name of the first book of the Greek version of the Old Testament is? Geneseos. Okay, back to Matthew. Very first two words of the first book of the New Testament. Matthew grabs the very language from the opening chapters of Genesis and says, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Who is he saying Jesus is? A new beginning. A new Adam. He is the new Adam. But not only is he a new Adam... What else does Matthew 1.1 tell us? He's a new, or the son of? Abraham. And the son of? David. So think about this. This is relevant. Those are the, the ones God made his covenant with. But there's more. I'm not done yet. In fact, you turn one chapter over to Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And look at this. It says, When he arose... He took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And who's he talking about there? Joseph, right? Yeah. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So who is Jesus now? Who was the son in the Old Testament? Who did God call his son? In Egypt, by Israel. Jesus is now the new Israel. And so Jesus is the new Adam. He comes and brings on a new Genesis. And he's the son of Abraham. And he's the son of David. And he's a new Israel. How do you think all those covenants we just talked about get fulfilled? In him. Alright, turn to chapter 4 of Matthew. Just look, see, we're just going this way. I don't know why I keep doing it. Alright, you see the beginning of the chapters... What happens in Matthew 4? Anybody know what Matthew's for? Matthew 4 is famous for? Temptations, right? He's tempted by who? After being in the wilderness for how many days? 40 days. And what does this temptation of the devil remind you of? This is a softball question. Anybody? Right back to Genesis, right? The serpent himself comes on the scene here. And it's seen. Do you, you know that's like the first time we see that happen, isn't it? Since Genesis 3, we don't really hear of the devil coming on the scene and tempting with words until Jesus' ministry starts in Matthew 4. It reminds you of Adam. 
And what does the 40 days remind you of, by the way? Because you answered it, Becky. <laughs> Israel in the wilderness. Right? So hear this. We've got, we've got new Adam being tempted like Adam. We've got new Israel being tempted like Israel. Come on. Come on. But of course, Jesus does what neither Adam nor Israel could do. He resists Satan and obey. Is this a new Adam in Israel? And then turn to chapter 5 of Matthew 5, verse 17. Somebody can read that one for me. How much time we got? Oh, we're perfect. Just, you know, four minutes and three pages. Great. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus does what? Fulfills the prophets and the law. God's rule is made perfectly manifest through the perfect human king, Jesus. Jesus came as the new Adam, the seed of Abraham, the true Israel, the greater David, and to both fulfill everything they pointed toward, but also perfect every, do perfectly everything they could not do. Jesus is the rule of God because Jesus is the kingdom of God. And so now we move finally... To the church. I'm going to leave all these application and covenant application questions for you, although I'd love to get to them. Might be an idea next week. All right. Now we move to the church, because of course Jesus did more than establish God's kingdom in his own person. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29 says this And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. Gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's the title of today's course? We said it was Kingdom Through Covenant. Jesus established His kingdom in the lives of His people through the new covenant in His blood. God's people in the New Testament, therefore, receive the benefits of Christ's rule. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they pray for it to further come. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, that we are the Israel of God. The church is the Israel of God. As Peter now says of us in 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen generation, the new Adams, a royal priesthood, sons who rule on God's behalf, a holy nation, a new Israel, his own special people. We are the new Adams, sons, the new Israel, Abrahamic children of the promise. That's who we are. These people of the new covenant are to be the people of his kingdom who specially represent God and model what God expects of all nations. And there you have it at the end, your application. All right, we're going to take really just time, you're going to take time uh, to demonstrate how we apply this understanding of the covenant to our lives together as Christians. So just look, I'm just going to read it to you. Um, Okay, the covenant thread. God rules all things, will call all humanity to judgment. Therefore, what does the Bible say about God's role with regards to all creation? How do we apply that? What does that mean about His authority? So that's the first covenant thread. And then we move to the therefore. 
Therefore, there's no such thing as spiritual neutrality, whether in public or private. There's only one standard of righteousness and justice, and it's a biblical one. So the application question for that would be, how then would you describe your relationship with God based on both your public and private life? The covenant thread moves on. God's special people exist to model what is required of all humanity, a true politic. Where should we look for justice among God's people? The application would be being made in God's image. What have you been created to do? What have you been redeemed to do? And that covenant, this in turn, should lead to discussions about, number four, the witness of the church and how its evangelism is tied to its deeds. Application question. Would you be able to share the gospel from the scriptures for someone right now? Friends, I don't know if there's a more important question for you to answer. If I asked you right now, share the gospel with me. Would you be able to formulate into words what the gospel is? How often are you engaging in evangelism? Which then would in turn is also tied to this, the role of God's law and life of God's people. What is the role of the law in your life? How does it make sense of it? How do you make sense of it under the new covenant? And then six, the institutional nature of the people of the new covenant. How should they be marked off by the signs of the covenant? Lord's Supper and baptism. How does baptism act as a sign of the new covenant? Have you been baptized by immersion after trusting in Christ? How does Lord's Supper act as a sign of new covenant? Number seven. More broadly, the church as the regenerate people of the kingdom. What does that mean? What does the word regenerate mean? Can you answer that? How can you put this view about your brothers and sisters into practice? That's what the new covenant promises. Then number eight. The church's mission and whether we can say the kingdom extends further than the regenerating work of the new covenant. What is the mission of the church under the new covenant and why? What's the relationship between this mission and the new covenant? And honestly, this is our prayer that you would take this home and really look at it. You'll begin to see that this whole storyline, kingdom through covenant, you'll really see how God would address all the issues we face day in and day out in our lives that we can live for His glory. Tracing the covenant is vital toward growing in our understanding of this story of redemption. Any questions, thoughts, or comments? You heard this before? You learn anything new tonight? Were you reminded of something old tonight? Were you encouraged? Praise God. Well, one thing too, to add to it, the disciples are the twelve tribes. A picture that, yeah, it's a, a particular foreshadow that God would choose number twelve, right? That's what we call a type in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the promise of the New Testament, right? And what a, what a vision that is of what Israel would become. It's a picture of what the church is, right? Knowing that these twelve are going to be apostles and building the foundation of the New Testament church. All right. Anything else? All right. Of course, I'll be here afterwards if you want to save your questions for later. That's fine. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, as we think about just the weight of the Edemic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, even the New Covenant, um, Father, we're, we're thankful that Jesus came and fulfilled it all. Lord, Jesus is God's person who is now dwelling in God's place and who has lived perfectly under God's rule. And because of that, we as his people brought into the throne of grace by his sacrifice enter into that kingdom even now. And we long for the day where it's consummated. We long for the day where we will all gather as God's people in the new heavens and new earth in your place. And we too 
will live perfectly under your rule with unhindered fellowship with you. Bless us now and really help us to see life amidst that reality, among that reality, that we would view every aspect and every conversation through the lens of the kingdom through covenants. That you would help us to do that and equip us. Father, I pray that this class would be beneficial for these people in here. Would they come come home with these questions and not view this as some sort of waste of time, but view this as an opportunity to grow closer to you. Father, really search and try their hearts um, to see whether or not first they're in you and and secondly, whether or not they're truly living for you. You encourage us all to work towards this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed. God bless you.